You're listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. Hi, I'm David Manti, and welcome to a new episode of the Today in Manufacturing podcast. With me this week is Jeff Ranke, and Anna's out this week, so Andy Zoll's back with us. How you doing, Andy? Uh, I'm good. Good to be back. Excellent. It's great to have you back. We each have more than 15 years of experience covering the manufacturing industry. Every week, we take the five most popular stories on our websites and discuss the implications they have on the industry going forward. Before we get started, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by leaving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. If you want to email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, David, or Andy at IN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. And we are now live every Thursday at 1.30. So make sure to subscribe on YouTube at IEN Magazine to make sure you get a notification when we go live. Uh, As we said last week, we're going live on Thursdays. You can get the audio version on Fridays and the video version on Mondays. If that doesn't work for you, email one of us. We'll respond. I promise. Jeff, how you doing? Are we, like when they do that, are we supposed to do like a live version, like right there with them or something? If they reach out to us, if those don't work, is that yeah, what, no. we're, what we're offering? Or? Like a yeah. live studio audience? Yeah, we're offering a live one-on-one so that way they can they tell us. They can't do it live. If they don't watch the video, if they don't want to listen to the podcast, something else. We'll just do it right there for him. We'll do like we should do a live airing of grievances where uh, we let Festivus like everyone uh, bring in everything that you want us to change about the podcast. We'll give everyone a five minute window. Maybe make it one change. Maybe. 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 Uh, Andy, we did give you a little bit more of a heads up this week. We at least told you in the morning. Yes. (laughs) A good three, four hours head start. So, I mean, that's more than I need i mean it probably an, another night of head start <laughs> probably wouldn't have made much difference so we're good oh very good um and anna we hope everyone at your house feels well soon well before we get started with our first story we have a word from our sponsor regardless of what you hear supply chain disruptions labor challenges and low-cost foreign competition are not the biggest threats to u.s manufacturers ransomware gangs phishing schemes and ip theft now top this list That's why the Security Breach Podcast, hosted by Jeff Ranke, takes these hackers to task, examining how groups like Reveal and Exotic Lily are able to organize their attacks and how the industrial sector can protect themselves against tools like Cobalt Strike and Raspberry Robin. Stay up to date on all these vital cybersecurity topics by listening, downloading, and subscribing to the Security Breach Podcast. And we're back. And to learn a little bit more about our exciting new podcast, Security Breach, here's the host, Jeff Ranke. Here I am to talk about Security Breach. No, I'm excited about this upcoming issue, guys. Um, our producer of this podcast, as well as Security Breach, Eric Sorensen, reached out and kind of landed a rock star within the, the cybersecurity community. Uh, Jack Resider is the founder and host of Dark Side Diaries. It is an incredibly popular cybersecurity podcast. He's talked to a lot of scary people, um, good guys and bad guys. He's just got a lot of great perspective. We talked to him about industrial cybersecurity specifically. We talked to him about some of his interesting experiences and maybe the things that keep him up at night, as well as a lot of great lessons learned. So I'm really looking forward to that episode. It was it came out great. It's a little weird when you're talking to somebody who has a pixelated picture up there. Yeah, it looked like an, a Rorschach or whatever. Yeah, yeah, in an effort to protect his own personal privacy. Um, yeah, he distorted his image, so he doesn't so you want that out there. You don't even get to know what he looked like. I do not know what he looks like. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but he's got a lot of great stories to tell. So it's definitely worth uh, checking out. I mean, that's how you know he's legit. Just like I won't even show my face. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh my goodness! All right. <clears throat> Did he do the voice thing like on sixty minutes? No, it was his voice. Okay, it was not because that I w- that would have been really distracting. Yes, to be honest. <laughs> yes, hundred so percent. I could handle looking at it, not seeing him, but yeah, hearing a. One of David's robotic overlord type tones would have been difficult. <laughs> They're making it sound more human. It's a constant reiteration process. All right. Our first story this week. Former plant manager pleads guilty over cereal outbreak. Ravi, Kum- <clears throat> Ravi Kumar Charmala is the former director of quality assurance who oversaw sanitation at several Cary Inc. plants, including a facility in Gridley, Illinois. Last week, the former manager pleaded guilty to charges stemming from a salmonella outbreak four years ago. One of the Cary plants produced Kellogg's Honey Smacks cereal, which was recalled after a salmonella poisoning outbreak in summer 2018. Termala admitted that he directed subordinates to alter the site's program for monitoring pathogens. He also ordered workers to lie to Kellogg company officials for about two years. In June 2018, the FDA and CDC traced the bad smacks to the Gridley facility. More than 130 illnesses were traced back to the problem. Chermala pleaded guilty to three misdemeanor counts of causing the introduction of adulterated food into interstate commerce. He is scheduled to be sentenced in January. Jeff, your thoughts on Mr. Chermala and his bad smacks? Well, before I... Wow. Um, Before I get to... To my thoughts here, let me ask you guys this. What did you think of, first of all, the charges that they brought in terms of the level and the amount of punishment that was handed out? Do you feel it was commensurate with what happened? How did you feel about those things? Because that kind of bleeds into what I want to talk about a little bit. Andy? Um, I mean, without knowing the particulars of of the case and without being a a lawyer and what they could prove, what they couldn't prove, that sort of thing, I mean, it seems light. I mean, three misdemeanor counts. Um, it's it's a plea deal, so maybe they thought this was um, kind of the the best way to kind of resolve uh, this issue. But I mean, obviously, um, it's a good thing no one uh, died apparently from this from this outbreak four years ago. But uh, just somebody could have, right? Yes, yeah. for, for oh, sure, definitely, very easily. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but just on its surface, it seems light. It definitely seems light to me. Also, I uh, I tried like I was looking up what he faces as a result, and if it wasn't a plea deal, it's maybe a year max per count and a thousand dollar fine, and just not enough. And then as because it's a result of a plea deal, probably not even going to see that. He made a hundred and thirty people sick, and like he's lucky people didn't die. Right. I mean, especially if you are somebody who has a certain pre-existing health condition, if you are pregnant, things mm-hmm. like that, it can salmonella can definitely be a killer. Mm-hmm. And that kind of leads into where I'm going with this. Carrie, just in case you weren't familiar, they are a $7.5 billion food service contract manufacturer. An enormous company. They're based in Ireland. They have plants in 30 different countries. Mm -hmm. Enormous company. Now, when you look at this facility, which, by the way, was shut down in 2018. Mm -hmm. Very interesting timing. I know I'm going to sort of float a conspiracy theory here. But when you also look at the fact that part of the settlement of this case was that a lot of the, the findings were sealed. They are not made open to the public. This individual is facing these types of charges for a facility from a facility that was closed. These were cost-cutting measures that were undertaken by a quality control manager. You can call them whatever you want to. They yeah. were cost-related adjustments that were made here. I have a hard time believing other people at this facility did not know what was going on. He's the fall guy. And mm-hmm. the reason he can be the fall guy is because what is he facing? Nothing, yeah. Literally nothing. Yeah. Why wouldn't you charge this guy with almost with 
attempted murder. Yeah, or that's like, a. I mean, I know that sounds super like dramatic. Yeah, but there is there's got to be a stiffer charge here than basically. What was it? What was it exactly? It was a releasing unte- uh, oh, contaminated yeah. products? Misdemeanor counts of causing the introduction of adulterated food into interstate commerce. You know, I don't think they really workshop the names when they make the laws. It's a weak charge, is mm-hmm. my point. I, for a, something very serious that happened at a huge company, there is absolutely no way. This is where it stopped or started with this individual. It went further up the food chain. Other people knew, but he was willing to take the rap because it's a weak slap on the wrist and it's not going to affect him. And the company can basically say, well, it was this guy. He got caught and we closed the facility. I guess we're good. No, this is a bigger systemic issue here and potentially even a cultural problem with Mm -hmm. Kerry. And they need to be known and called out on it so that other food manufacturers who are using their facilities know exactly what went on here. No, I, uh, you know, we don't know if anyone above him knew about it, but we do know that he was the quality assurance manager in multiple facilities in locations, I think in Wisconsin, also Illinois, Iowa. Um, so if no one above him knew it, there were a lot of people underneath him that knew it and nobody either stepped forward. I mean, this is where we sometimes talk about, uh, the ability of a whistleblower to actually make a big difference, um, for a company, um, I also thought that, you know, unlike when we talked about the ghost cattle, the 3M story, or even the counterfeit military goods story from last week, Kellogg's tried to do its due due diligence, get through it, and was still fooled. Uh, You know, we talk about how Tyson can just kind of look the other way and no one went to the farm and looked for the cows. They sent, you know, people to double check, like, all of this guy's records and, uh, he went above and beyond to fool them for the course of two years. And I thought that that just, you know, Kellogg's tried and they were still kind of uh, pulled the wool over their eyes. Um, Andy, what were your thoughts on this story? I mean, we talk about how Kerry kind of, I mean, obviously their name is in the news because of this, but on the whole, they probably get off easy here. And it's Way too easy. a shame for Kellogg because... Not oh, only the were they deceived, it. but I mean, it was their cereal that got recalled. So they've, they were deceived by this quality control manager. And then they're the ones who have to issue this release saying, Hey, all of this cereal with uh, a sugar bear on it, right? That's honey smack. No, um, that's frog. The, that's the, the frog, the frog, that's right. Sure, yeah. Um, sorry for, for mixing up attack. those marketing. <laughs> yes. Uh, anyway, it's there. They take the rap for that. And now it's four years later and they've dealt with, I don't know how much damage to their brand and, it wasn't even their fault. So it's just, I don't know what Kellogg could have done here, given that there seems to be kind of an effort to deceive them at the plant itself. But it's just another way when we talk about a lot of product safety issues, it seems like most of the time they're involved with suppliers or, you know, co-manufacturers, that sort of thing. And it just reinforces the need to, to keep an eye on that, even if in this case may not have helped. It is Diggum the Frog. Yes. Um, also, for the record, this cereal is gross pre-salmonella okay um yeah jeff you had mentioned it closed in 2018 it was also the largest employer in this village yeah 115 people work uh worked there and they were shocked when it happened they said it was due to lagging demand at the time um what i also thought was like too bad this happened and they couldn't keep the facility open because they would have probably gone through the COVID serial boom that probably would have helped demand in the event that that was really the issue. Well, I think there were there had to be pre-existing operational issues there because yeah. they did implement a cost-cutting procedure here to get around a quality control. Yeah. And to going back to Andy's point, I don't blame Kellogg's at all. 
Yeah. They were probably doing their diligence in terms of conducting those third-party audits. But when, again, when you have a $7.5 billion company that wants to fool you with paperwork and software and data, they probably have the ability to do it. We're entering into a new age of not just supply chain management, but supply chain transparency and visibility. Mm-hmm. You have to think that a lot, hopefully, fewer of these types of issues can come about because when data is missing, it should stand out in a much more glaring fashion. Now, and it's funny, and this is the the, set, the first of a couple of different stories we're going to talk about. This was only four years ago. Mm-hmm. How have things changed from yeah. a supply chain, from a labor perspective in so many ways, an employee morale and whistleblower perspective, just in that amount of time? Uh, it's a different world. Do you think since this comes out, his name's out there, is he rehirable in the manufacturing industry? I think that depends on the culture of your company. Mm -hmm. There are some people who are going to look at this and said, hey, he took a bullet for the company. He's loyal. He was able to identify a cost control that probably helped keep this plant open for a couple years longer than it would have been. From an ethical perspective, there's no way in hell I could hire this guy. Yeah. No way. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see what the terms of his severance were. Probably not in a food safety role, you know. Probably (laughs) not hireable there. Yeah. All right. Our next most popular story this week, Georgia Pacific abruptly closes Wisconsin plant. Last week, Georgia Pacific said it is closing its second Wisconsin plant in just eight months. Some 38 workers will lose their jobs when the packaging plant closes its doors for a final time in Oshkosh. In a letter to the state, the company said the shutdown and layoffs would take place effective immediately. Union workers will receive severance for 60 days, but do not have bumping rights to replace employees in other positions. Earlier this year, Georgia Pacific announced the closure of a plant in Green Bay. 190 workers uh, will be impacted, but the company at least gave them an 18-month window for winding down the plant. At the time, the company cited outdated equipment and, quote, changing customer demand for the closure. Jeff, do you think it was the same issue with this plant, even though it had fewer workers, uh, you know, less demand and outdated equipment, and they just had to make kind of a, a business decision? It feels like it. You yeah. know, the, the first story definitely had some conspiracy theories involved. It seemed like there were some bigger picture issues there. Here, I do go with Georgia Pacific. I mean, it was a shame to, to walk into a plant on Monday and see you're out of a job. I mean, they, they are giving them 60 days. Yeah. The one other thing that makes me believe that there isn't as much to this is these workers, these 38 workers there were represented by the Steelworkers Union. Mm-hmm which has a lot of teeth. I don't think that's somebody that would just go quietly into the night on something. But I think when everybody looked at this, they seemed to feel like it was a legitimate decision by Georgia Pacific. I think the other factors that kind of go into this is even though this corrugated, I say I said that horribly. Uh, corrugated. Corrugated, thank yeah. you. Um, Box business is booming right now, thanks to e-commerce and a lot of other things. Georgia Pacific has invested like $50 million in two other facilities that build boxes as well. Mm. So when you look at that, when you look at the fact that this was an older building, if you kind of do a Google Maps, you can get a pretty good vibe on it. 38 people, it, plus even what they're doing within the state of Wisconsin, yeah. they did announce a $500 million expansion to another facility. It's more of a mill. It's a different type of job mm. in Green Bay. But they're not abandoning Wisconsin. They're not abandoning this business. Just felt like this was the one that probably was would have been the hardest to expand or grow. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it was a casualty of that. Uh, they did say that all employees can transfer to another facility or even another uh, company within uh, Coke, but it might not be another union facility. So we'll see whether or not they make that choice. Andy, your thoughts on uh, Georgia Pacific's move in Wisconsin? 
so just to state the obvious, this is an enormous headache for these, uh, I believe, 38 individuals laid off with no warning. They have faced the prospect of finding a new job, maybe relocating. So that's mm-hmm. uh, not a great week for <laughs> it's them. A terrible week. Terrible yes. week. The good news is that this industry, like most manufacturing sectors, is hiring. Mm-hmm. Um, Wisconsin has a, an interesting history with paper. It's still, uh, I believe, the top uh, outputter, if that's a word, of paper. Um, Producer. It's a, it's a huge, huge industry historically, especially in northeast Wisconsin where this is located. Um, and I was looking at a story from earlier this year in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Um, it's still an $18 billion industry here. Uh, there's still 30,000 or so people working in it and the, uh, percentage of its workforce under age 25. Do you have uh, you guys have a guess on this under 25, under age 25 in the paper industry in Wisconsin, 20%. I was going to, yeah, I was going to go like 15, it's nine, <laughs> it's 9%, which, uh, is reportedly one of the lowest, not surprisingly in manufacturing. So they are. They need workers as as the paper industry kind of there's been high profile mill closures here. This one um, among the smallest in recent decades. Anyway, companies have have moved. It's a it's transitioned kind of from your standard printer paper to, you know, corrugated stuff for e-commerce, that sort of thing. Um, But they're hiring. These jobs are are out there. So um, and they're desperate for especially young workers. So Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully these people will be able to land on their feet if they want to stay in the paper sector. They they should have ample opportunity. Um, it's just a matter of where and, mm-hmm. uh, and kind of when. So, and I mean, there are, I know manufacturers in green Bay that are constantly struggling to find, mm-hmm. um, employees. And so, um, or sorry, this wasn't green Bay. This was, uh, Oshkosh. this was Oshkosh. I mean, that's all kind of in the same area. Um, so if the people are looking at relocating, they might, they might not have to relocate at all mm-hmm. if they want to stay in manufacturing. Um, sorry. One of the things I was thinking about was, they had mentioned how a few employees are going to stay on to help close the plant. Would you rather have it on Monday, just hard cut it? You have your 60 day severance to find a new job, or would you want to be one of those last people that kind of like helped wind it down for a while, maybe giving you a little bit more of a buffer before that 60 day severance kicked in? I have been uh, fortunate enough not to get laid off ever. I suppose mm. I should knock on wood here. Um, <laughs> You're good. Uh, yeah, let me know. Um, so I can't. I can't say firsthand. You would think you'd want the band aid ripped off right away, but yeah. it's got to be hard. See, I would go the other way. Yeah, yeah. I'll wind it down. Yeah. Um, just because it would put a little bit more time into that sixty days, especially if you can kind of bump that up right towards the holidays, end of the year type oh, of thing. Yeah. You know, they probably also got vacation days that have been saved up. They'll still need to be paid for. So. Yeah, I would. I'd wind her down. Plus, yeah. that'd be kind of interesting, don't you think? Like, just slowly shutting down the facility. Well, like going through, you're not probably doing your actual job that you were doing, building boxes and things like that. So, yeah, I don't know if you're like cleaning up, getting rid of stuff. I don't know. It'd be kind of interesting. I have worked in a facility Sad, that, but that seemed doomed. So uh, <laughs> that had its own set of headaches. So, but I, I, I can see how it's kind of quiet and tranquil in there. I guess the only relatable experience I had for one summer, I worked for a temp agency. It was always in factories. Mm. And one of them uh, was a process of moving like from one facility to another. Mm-hmm. And that was interesting, even though you're, it was positive, obviously, because you're moving to a bigger location. But it was interesting shutting it down because you're just moving stuff and cleaning stuff. And well, I don't know. Yeah, I wonder if you just, if you're prepping, prepping the equipment to be resold on the secondary market or maybe move to another facility. You know, I mean- I'm really interested to know more about how that's done. You know, it's yeah. kind of like, do you start in the back and just work slowly, work uh, closing things down? Yeah. Um, 
According to the Oshkosh Northwestern, Georgia Pacific decided to shut down the facility because of a decrease in orders at that location for several months, and it could no longer compete with the market. Um, the company spokesperson, Lauren Campen, said, quote, it was a business decision that had to be made. Um, at least a company sp- spokesperson came out and gave a comment. Yeah. You know, there was no mystery around what happened. Well, and she said, too, the workers did everything we asked them to do. Yeah. She was very complimentary that way, too. And, and I think that was, I think it was well handled. I think they handled it very well. I was going to ask you guys, what did you think about they don't have bumping rights? In other words, not being able to go to another facility where their seniority would transfer. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's because they had shut down that other mill, even though they're the, the $500 million expansion also taking place at another mill in Wisconsin was going to have 100 jobs created as a result? Maybe they were hoping some sort of overlap between those two and didn't want to include these folks in that. I, I thought that was interesting yeah. to, to make that particular exclusion. No, I th- I thought I thought about bumping rights specifically, too, because I'm not very well versed on how they work specifically. Yeah. Um, but. They did kind of when she specifically said that workers could uh, transfer to other facilities and then she specifically said they might be non-union facilities. That for me kind of made it seem like maybe they didn't want you to be a part of the union coming back. Um, uh, What did you think about the bumping rights thing? I thought maybe it just related to the job, the responsibilities. Oh. Like maybe it just wasn't an apples to apples fit with other openings. I mean, unless they're going to the the two plants that I talked about where they made investments in the corrugated um, materials packaging. One was in Tennessee, one was in Pennsylvania. Yeah. So they're probably not going to go there. So with the mills here in Wisconsin, maybe it was just a different different type of work. Well, and the company has a facility in Sheboygan, which is closer than it could be. Uh, it employs 140 people. That company is going to remain open. That's apparently where the remaining orders that they had in Oshkosh are going to Sheboygan's facility. Um, so maybe there will be fit for them there. Um, I don't know as to whether or not that's a union facility. Um, all right. Our next most popular story this week. Workers could get $1.75 million over meat plant raid. Last Wednesday, a federal judge approved a settlement for Latino meat processing plant employees in Tennessee who were targeted by an immigration raid in 2018. About 100 Southeastern Provision Plant employees stand to share $1.75 million. The workers, who were held as a result of the raid, sued, claiming that the IRS and the Department of Homeland Security targeted them illegally. According to the settlement, each worker is expected to receive between $5,000 and $6,000. The U.S. is also on the hook for an additional $475,000 that will be shared by seven employees who made excessive force and unlawful arrest claims. About $150,000 will go towards attorney's fees and other expenses. Part of the problem comes down to how the search warrant was obtained. Agents said that they were only looking for records regarding a tax evasion case against plant owner James Brantley. However, Attorneys showed that the agencies used the search warrant to mount a large-scale workplace immigration raid. According to video of the raid, when agents entered the facility, they separated white plant workers from those with brown skin, made fun of the Latino workers, and roughed up at least two employees. It turns out that Brantley, the owner, was paying workers in cash to avoid taxes, but he wasn't arrested during the raid. He pled guilty to tax evasion and received 18 months in a federal work camp. The settlement to this class action lawsuit is scheduled to receive final approval on February 27th, 2023. Jeff, I know that there are a lot of different things going on with this story, but what was your initial reaction? My, my just When I first read it and I was kind of putting down some notes, the first thing I said is, 
there is a lot of bad like in all <laughs> yeah. facets of this. And and I, I'll try to kind of go piece by piece, mm-hmm. jump in when you when you want. Let's start with the owner. Right. Okay. This James Brantley. The AP, again, just my perception, it felt like they were almost trying to position him as this benevolent individual in the community, trying to help out these folks just looking for a better life. Mm-hmm. He was a manipulator. He took advantage of these poor people. He was paying them six to eight bucks an hour without overtime. That's why he was paying them in cash. Right. So let's let's not paint any rosy pictures there. Yeah. This was not a good person. These folks were doing extremely hard work. Okay. And they were being taken advantage of. Yeah. In my experience, when you've had someone that you uh, work for that pays you in cash and lets you know how good of a deal it is, that's when you really need to second guess whether or not it's a good deal. And, you know, you can obviously see a number of these workers probably had no clue. Right. They were were completely just, you know, snowballed and taken advantage of. And that's that's horrible. Let's look at the raid now, the Mm -hmm. actual approach. Now, again, getting back to what I said earlier, four years ago was a very different environment. Mm -hmm. These ICE raids were being championed by our president with, and he got a lot of support for him because he was focused on violent criminals and drug dealers and all these other nefarious characters that were creeping over the border. I don't know about you guys, but if somebody is going to work in a poultry processing facility for six bucks an hour, I don't think those are the people we got to worry about. Mm -hmm. So when you look at the characteristics of the raid, which is, I think, probably played a huge part in the settlement, there was absolutely... There never is. But why in the world would you be treating these people, abusing these folks, roughing them up, doing what you had to do to basically make this as awkward, uncomfortable, and in a hostile type of situation as possible? Mm-hmm. That's the vibe you get. And yeah. that's probably, again, why the settlement came into play. Yeah. Okay? So the, the method that was used here was horrible mm-hmm. as well. So then you look at the workers. Now, there was about, a, it was about 100 workers that were detained. Yeah. Now, the reality is half of those we're illegal immigrants, mm-hmm. okay? I can appreciate the fact that they're looking for a better standard of living. They want to make some money, but the fact is they broke the law, mm-hmm. okay? They should have been de- they should have been deported. They should have been they were doing something wrong. I don't know enough about the gray areas of search warrants to know if this is the right way to find somebody doing breaking the law, but this is what happened. Mm-hmm. And I don't have a lot of problems with those people who are Ill- illegally being deported. Who I do feel for is the other half who were here legally mm-hmm. and were obviously being taken advantage of. They're American citizens who are due the same rights of, uh, you know, the pursuit of happiness, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as anybody else. And they should be protected, not abused and treated the way that they were again during this raid. Mm-hmm. So for those folks, I feel terrible for them. Again, mm-hmm. a lot of bad to go around here. But when I look at this settlement, there is just something I cannot get past. Again, when we're paying 50 individuals who broke the law and have been deported back to their country, and we're still going to give them five or $6,000, mm-hmm. I don't get that. Like, there, there's something broken in that whole process. Again, those who are here illegal, those who are here legally, who were abused and mistreated, they deserve this type of settlement. The others, I, I, I'm really conflicted. I don't understand. How we can say, hey, you broke the law, but the way we found out wasn't really right, so we're going to take care of you a little bit. Well, I think part of it is because it's a class action settlement. I also think it's kind of a human rights thing as to how they were treated and uh, during the raid that is cause for the settlement. Because even if you are even if you are here legally, you have, as a human, some sort of right and to not be treated a certain way. And if you watch the video of the raid, they were pretty brutal with some of these employees. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so I can see, especially when it comes to when you have 100 of, uh, 100 employees together 
as part of a settlement, you can't just kind of separate those who are here legally versus those okay. uh, illegally. Um, Andy, did you have a thought on any of these bad actors Jeff's talking about? So I just kind of wanted to, I mean, Jeff did a good bullet point, you know, blow by blow uh, overview of the issues here. I just kind of want to boil it down to how I saw it. Mm-hmm. Basically, uh, and I understand the optics of federal dollars going to people who are undocumented and how that can look to to people of uh, with different viewpoints. I get it. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically what happened here is there were dozens of meatpacking workers who were being taken advantage of by a guy who didn't want to pay his taxes. And then the feds lied to a judge to get to them and then did racist stuff while they were raiding them illegally. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, w- I won't get into the letter of the law here because I am certainly not qualified to do so. But just ethically, mm-hmm. I mean, the spectrum of people not doing great stuff. I have, you know, the guy avoiding his taxes, taking advantage of these people way up top. Then the feds who lied in mm-hmm. order to basically abuse them. Yeah. And then way, way down are the immigrants trying to make something of themselves at this job where they're being taken advantage of. So, uh, that, that's where I see it. I, I fail to see how anyone could see it any other way, but I'm sure <laughs> yeah. they're out there. Yeah. No, I mean, I agree. Like, uh, it's kind of like how Jeff started, right? There's a lot of bad going around, but, uh, I mean, obviously the owner was kind of the guy who orchestrated all of this. And honestly, they don't have, you know, uh, um, he's the one that brought the undocumented workers into his, his business. Right. Um, and you're right. The, uh, the feds who kind of broke many, I don't know if there's laws, but at least procedures as to how they obtain the warrant and what they used it for. That's the other thing I didn't get is why lie about it in order to raid the facility when, as Jeff pointed out, that was a time when kind of every kind of raid like that was getting greenlit. Yeah, I don't, again, I don't know the gray areas of this, but it Mm -hmm. seems like if you are a legitimate law enforcement agent and you get a search warrant and you're going for one thing, but you find other bad stuff, I guess I'm not exactly clear on why that's a negative or that's that's wrong. Um, Isn't that like the fruit of the poison tree sort of thing? We're like... Because the search warrant was um, corrupted, everything they found as a result of it. Like, I don't know. I, I guess. And again, I can't argue that. I don't know that. I don't think that should be, I don't think that should be held against this law enforcement agency. But I think one of the reasons that led to the settlement wasn't just the fact that they conducted the raid. It's the manner in which it was done, how they treated people during the process. I think yeah. that is the bigger issue. And and that's fair. I, yeah. I, would, I would agree with your points. They're human beings. Yeah. The other thing I would say too is, Again, 2018 versus now, it's a different world in so many ways. But I think about this. You had 50 people who wanted to work in a U.S. manufacturing plant. Mm -hmm. Think about right now. We're struggling to fill jobs. I mean, wouldn't you love to take these individuals and say, okay, look, you want to work in American manufacturing. Let's get you fixed up. Let's get you a beat. Let's teach you how to be a citizen. Teach you how to be a citizen. Let's do what we need to do yeah. to make you a legal citizen here. <laughs> that sounds like something you, that happens yeah, in one of those federal yeah, that, came out, that came out horribly wrong. <laughs> um, you know where I'm going. Yeah, I know. You know, I know what you mean. But uh, I think part of the issue is that weren't like work visas kind of frozen under the administration also under the Trump administration, okay. um, making that also more difficult to get uh, foreign workers in. Um Another part of the story was that the workers also are going to receive this letter from the government that says they're a class member of the lawsuit. So workers that were in the U.S. illegally don't automatically gain immigration relief as a part of this settlement, which was confusing to some people. Um, 
But what this would allow them to apply, they are allowed to apply for lawful status within the U.S. or seek relief from deportation. And immigration officials can consider this letter as a part of the process, but it's not something that sort of, you know, rubber stamps you. Right. Um, But, you know, I mean. I think it's important to point out that the workers aren't really making out. I think if you gave them the choice, hey, you can have. You can be abused by the government, get $5,000, and then still be subject to deportation, or you could keep your job and not be bothered. I think they would take uh, option B there. So I don't, I don't. I think you're right. I know the headline reads like, oh, we're giving money to people who broke the law, but, and I guess technically it is, but that's far from what's happening here. That is not how the headline reads, and I'm not taking it personally just because I wrote the headline. That's but- good. That's big of you. <laughs> Uh, no, I think uh, there were a lot of things going on with the story. And I honestly, the people who I felt for the mer- most were the unsuspecting workers that their lives, 100 lives were turned upside down, um, both legally and illegally here, as well as their families. And, you know, and it's probably hasn't come back to normal yet. You know, maybe this will at least provide some sort of resolution and they can move I mean, forward. Undocumented workers are like it or not, are a huge part of this country's uh, agricultural food workforce. They just are. It's mm-hmm. not whether it's not a matter of right and wrong. It is. So yeah, to pretend otherwise and to pretend that just deporting them all would well, make I, things I, incredible is uh, silly. I do think that it is often oversimplified. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll stop there. Okay. <laughs> Our next story. A bit departure, as we're talking about purple lights. <laughs> Why are street lights turning purple? Start wearing purple, everybody. Street lights just don't shine like they used to. Reports have surfaced of some LED street lights in the U.S. and Canada turning purple. The abnormal colors, which have been described as blue, indigo, and black, are the result of a manufacturing defect. According to Vancouver, <clears throat> according to Vancouver's engineering department, a coating on the fixtures has failed. A president and CEO of an LED fixture manufacturer in Ontario explained that LEDs are never just white. A phosphor coating makes the light glow white. The purplish hue is closer to the LED's actual cult color. North Carolina officials addressed concerned citizens by saying that while the odd color comes from a factory malfunction, the lights are not dangerous and put out the same amount of light. Jeff, can you imagine the crazed calls these utilities <laughs> received from people just concerned over the purple lights and what does that mean for some sort of alien invasion, obviously? No, I appreciated Nolan's thoughts there on the possible issues there. Everything from you know a Viking invasion to Prince fans um, somehow getting control of the light grid. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I think what I took away from this, because I saw a couple comments on the sites, people kind of taking an opportunity to bash LED lighting. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't the issue here, right? The LED light, the LED technology is not the problem. It was a manufacturing defect. It was it's the a, coating. It was just, it's a process involved in creating the product that faltered and is going to be fixed. Mm-hmm. And I think that that just brought that perspective in because we LEDs are unmitigatedly more efficient. There's no doubt about that. It's the right way to go. From an environmental perspective, from an energy perspective, all of that ways. I know people are always going to sort of have their preferences towards the different halogen lighting or the incandescent lights and all that kind of stuff. I know my dad, too, I mean, would never have installed an LED light if he could avoid it. Mm -hmm. But again, I think it's important. The lesson here is 
Don't blame the technology. The LEDs weren't at fault. It was a process that can be fixed. It kind of also made me think about plastics. Mm -hmm. Plastics are getting a horrible reputation right now. Again, the problem isn't the plastic product. The problem is figuring out a proper way to recycle it and handle mm -hmm. it once it gets into the waste stream. Or so. not even a proper way to recycle it, a uh, cost-effective way to recycle it. Yeah. Um, is this an opportunity to just change the color of streetlights? Because it seems, Andy, it seems odd to me that we're putting this special coating around it to make it uh, easier for people to live with, you know? So the idea here is that if you stop putting this coating on there, mm -hmm. Every LED streetlight is purple. Is that yes. the idea? Or in everything, blue, black. How our entire grid could look like a Prince video. I mean, <laughs> yes, basically. I'm you're. I mean, I'm not morally opposed to it. it sounds kind of cool. Um, <laughs> Colors are distracting. So no. like, we would have all sorts of issues. There's oh, no way sure. we're ready for this. Yeah, and um, he's just going to be walking down the streets, like shooting his own like the first TikTok thing, Prince video. First, yes, I'll join TikTok for that. Uh, the the join. The, Come on. <laughs> the thing. Uh, that I thought of now these it, it says they emit the same amount of light it's just a different hue of light but it made me think about uh, light pollution and whether there's there's a way to uh, address that if people uh, are more amenable to off-colored mm -hmm. uh, street lights if there's a way to I mean there's coastal communities um, a lot of times they will uh, I was in Florida this spring and they have kind of these uh, deep orange lights to mm -hmm. keep wildlife from getting disoriented because they rely on light from the moon, light reflecting off the water. Um, and there's light pollution. It's not, you know, the top of the list of concerns that we have to deal with as a society probably. But um, I think there's a discussion to be had and it's uh, it's interesting what we could do if we just knocked off the, the coating off the LED lights. You wouldn't think light pollution is top of mind, but if you have ever gone to a community event where some, like, uh, let's say a new gas station was going into your neighborhood, potentially, <laughs> you would be surprised by the number of people that are like, but the light pollution. Yeah. And uh, I just think that if we use this as a possible opportunity to change public perception around what traditional uh, lights at lighting looks like at night, maybe we could fix some of those problems. I'm not saying that, you know, Quick Trip is going, going to, you know, stop becoming the big white beacon on every mm -hmm. street corner in Wisconsin and all of a sudden turn purple, but it could be a solution to some of those problems and also probably take a lot of money. Cause I'm assuming that in the manufacturing process, that coding process has to be costly. And yeah. this is going to be incredibly costly for what seems like one manufacturer across multiple States or multiple manufacturers are having the same problem. They never named the uh, manufacturer, but it just seemed like they were all the same. Uh, in North Carolina, Duke Energy said that the laminate put on the light to make it white has worn off. So uh, if anything, it sounds like we could just make a more sustainable solution. Um, the lights in North Carolina are also still under warranty. So the manufacturer is paying to change all of them. And this impacts several thousand lights. And uh, how did this also not trigger a product recall? It's not a safety issue. It wasn't universal, it seemed like. I mean, it was just a little bit of hit and miss. I mean, it's not universal, but it's, you know, in multiple states now. Yeah. Um, you know, it, that was another thing in all the statements. It's just a handful. It's like, well, that's because the other ones haven't worn off yet. And because they said they were in specific patches, uh, specific areas, because they're all kind of installed in batches. And it's like, so all the other ones are going to go bad. Like, I mean. <laughs> well, to Andy's point, though, I don't think it was that they were, they were still functional, right? It wasn't a safety yeah. issue. They were still bright enough. It was just the wrong 
color, whatever you yeah. want to say. Oh, I know, I know. I have no problem with this, the purple hue. I'm just saying that, like, I do. <laughs> oh, yeah. You just, <laughs> Jeff can't do purple. I don't want to drive in a purple haze. <laughs> yeah, are we open to other color <laughs> options here instead of just uh, making them white. We could just uh, explore other See, I think areas this, on the visible spectrum. I think this could become potentially a safety issue. People are distracted easily, oh, yeah. man. Well, think I about mean, when you're driving and all of a sudden uh, the car in the opposite lane has like the bright blue lights, how yeah. disorienting that is. I don't know. Um, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, we got to be careful. Like this is one of those things that is supposed to remain constant. Yeah. When you start throwing some of these wild changes in, I could see this creating some driving distraction issues. I mean, yeah. I don't know. I, it, I'm, I'm I haven't about, seen it, so I don't know firsthand, but I could imagine there being some problems here. I can like, I guess I'm seeing it for myself, but if my grandmother did drive into purple lights, she would likely stop and panic and just lay down on the ground. Like, I mean, get out of the car. Probably. That's not probably. I wonder, I wonder where that comes from. That's not a gene that flows oh, through the family at all. Don't is it? go dipping back in that pool, Jeff. <laughs> you don't want to know what's back there. Uh, so yeah, there's the same problem in Wisconsin and basically all the utility has kind of said, if you see something, say something and report it to the local utility, local utility. Um, it is worth noting that some people do like them. And uh, actually, you had mentioned it, Sal, but they have even requested other color options. There you go. So, I mean, <laughs> that's another side of this where they're just like, wait a second. They can be other colors. Let's have another town meeting to discuss what color our town will be. Did they say where in Wisconsin? Just out of strictly curiosity. They did. There were uh, uh, three different cities, and I can't remember off the top of I'll, my head. Uh, I'll um, go back. Maybe. Uh, maybe take a road trip. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was Oshkosh again. Oh, that, um, make, that makes sense. <laughs> Sorry, Oshkosh. No, um, Oshkosh has it coming. <laughs> um, Oshkosh, Green Bay, Wausau, and Door County. Oh, I'll have to, I'll have to check Green up. Bay was okay with purple lights. I'll have to check with my uh, in-laws on that one. I'm sure Do- Green Bay was the least okay with it. And yeah. I, I bet Door County during wine season, if it turns yeah, purple, that's probably just are. Like that. yeah. yeah, Purple teeth, purple lights. Yeah. That did not work in Green Bay, I promise you. No, no. I did like how uh, some people weren't taking it too seriously. Matt Cullen, who is the WPS spokesperson near Green Bay, said they're still performing. The only difference is the color of the light even though it might appear like someone is a Prince fan. And uh, he gets it. He gets it. He's just like, you're coming to me with light problems. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> All right. Our most popular story this week. The last Pontiac ever built met a cruel fate. The Pontiac brand died in 2009. Rest in peace. The brand had an 84 year legacy before it was shuttered by GM. The last car to roll off the company's production line on December 5th, 2009 was a white, no, 2010 Pontiac G6, and someone believes that they've tracked it down. I actually think that it was ebony, not white. According to the drive, the G6 was a fleet vehicle that spent its first years as a rental in Hawaii. From there, it went to California, where it was purchased and driven by its new owner for nearly 60,000 miles. But... According to research done by a group of people on Reddit, also known as Redditors, that's a thing. I'm going to get blown up on Reddit now. The car was totaled in 2015. The next year, the vehicle sold for $450 at a salvage auction and was shipped to Mexico, which is where the records end. Jeff, this is just a reminder to me that there are no happy endings. I don't know. I can envision this G6 just riding off into the sunset, 
kicking up dust before it eventually just stopped because I do have an affinity for Pontiac. I had my very first car was a 1985 Pontiac Grand Am. Okay. And I think I paid, you get this, like $1,250 for it. Mm. All my hard-earned money from mowing uh, mowing grass and um, being in the hay miles and all that kind of stuff and working for the seed company, went towards my Pontiac Grand Am, and it was a horrible car because it (laughs) – <laughs> I mean, it was overpaid for at twelve fifty. I mean, we had all sorts of starting issues, engine issues. Probably put another like eight hundred dollars into that car to keep it running. So it kind of made me think a little bit. First of all, if you ever want to really have some amusement, YouTube some mid nineteen eighties ads for Pontiac and Oldsmobile. Yeah, they are fantastic. <laughs> Pontiac, we build excitement when it's running. And uh, I mean, Pontiac did for as far as for GM, it fit a really nice niche in terms that it had some different designs. It was maybe a little bit more cutting edge in some of their other brands in terms of the lines and, and stuff like that. So it it was their performance vehicle, but it just did not evolve. I mean, this is when we were getting into an era where right before Pontiac went away and Oldsmobile went away, where vehicles were supposed to last 150,000 miles. The foreign competition was getting a lot more reliable, um, more efficient from a gas usage perspective, all of those things. And those vehicles just didn't evolve. Mm-hmm. I mean, my dad was a huge Oldsmobile guy. I would have bought another Pontiac because I just liked the way they look. Yeah. I mean, what kid in high school didn't want a Fiero? Okay. That mm-hmm. was the car. Everybody wanted one of those. Mm-hmm. So, but again, they just didn't evolve from a performance perspective, from a fuel efficiency perspective, or from a reliability perspective. And that's kind of why they're no longer with us. That's so. uh, Redditor Manus Aventus commented on the end. Is that Latin? (laughs) It is. It's Latin for main event. No, (laughs) That's a bold reach. Yeah. Uh, What an awful, uh, they had commented, what an awful pedestrian anticlimactic way for a former marquee name to go out. A 2.4 liter four cylinder with an XM radio. (laughs) Not that it was sold for $450 in a salvage auction, but just the state of Pontiac is a roll up. Um, I was also, I found it crazy, you know, I'm sure all this information is probably more available than I know, but, you know, they were able to find out that, according to Reddit, they did say it was a black sedan and even had the VIN number. Um, also, Andy, why do you run that down? Run down the VIN number of or, the world's last Pontiac? Yeah, or just like, I mean, how does that come to the person where it's just like, you know, he's just sitting there one day, you know what, I'm chasing this dream. That is I mean, I tell people I'm pretty much paid to Google things, and uh, (laughs) that is beyond my search capabilities, I must tell you. Um, I want to emphasize that this is not – this is just the last Pontiac ever built. It was the last run of that particular car. If you still want a Pontiac, Mm. you have options, according to the internet that I did (laughs) five minutes before According to said Googling. Correct. No, uh, did you uh, think at all about – Whoever knew that they had the second to last production Pontiac, and now they stand as the last Pontiac standing. Uh, that had not occurred to me. I also wonder if the individual who bought it from the rental car place knew the significance of his vehicle. Oh, I kind of doubt it. Doubt no. it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, can you even, is that a thing? Can you look up uh, your VIN number and figure out where it was in terms of the the production? Got to ask uh, Manus Aventus yeah. here or whatever. <laughs> Manus Aventus, get on this, please. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's kind of a shame it was a G6. Like, it should have been a Bonneville or a, a Grand Prix or something. I don't My know. My friend had a uh, Sunfire in high school with the little, the little red oh, glow-up yeah. Pontiac thing you in the back. Yeah. There are no known photos of this car, and nobody knows, you know, whether or not it was scrapped, saved, or if it's just rotting away in a junkyard. Um, you know, 
I thought that it might be a nice home to a family of rats, but, uh, you know, it was likely melted down and recycled. Uh, I don't know if you guys have seen the movie Brave Little Toaster, but it 100% made me think of in Brave Little Toaster, there's this uh, musical number called Worthless, while all these old um, uh, these old uh, parts of this kid's childhood are basically thrown away <laughs> and they're in the scrap heap watching all these cars just get smashed into little cubes. And uh, the song Worthless uh, has all these cars singing, was happy till I heard him say, you're worthless. And I just really thought about the Pontiac. Wow. Mm-hmm. That is a deep dive. <laughs> it is. I was looking up the lyrics to the song. I'm like, this is a dark song. If it was recycled, it could be living on as a Ford Focus or something. It could be. If that counts as a happy ending, I don't know. But there was a whole thread on Reddit where it's just like you've 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 held this Pontiac in your hand a hundred times when you know yeah. you know you've uh, drank a beer or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, it was it was kind of an interesting story, and I don't know that I hear a lot about what happens to the last car on a production line. You know, every once in a while, like every nine years, when VW ends the uh, the bug, yeah. you know, they always do a big piece on what the last one off the line is, but um, not all the time. The Pontiac didn't get that treatment. No, yeah. no. They, they're like, let's give this one a quiet death. <laughs> all right. Well, before we move on to, in case you missed it, the stories that maybe weren't as popular on the website, but do still stand to make a big impact on the industry going forward. We have a word from our sponsor. Regardless of what you hear, supply chain disruptions, labor challenges, and low-cost foreign competition are not the biggest threats to U.S. manufacturers. Ransomware gangs, phishing schemes, and IP theft now top this list. That's why the Security Breach Podcast, hosted by Jeff Ranke, takes these hackers to task, examining how groups like Reveal and Exotic Lily are able to organize their attacks and how the industrial sector can protect themselves against tools like Cobalt Strike and Raspberry Robin. Stay up to date on all these vital cybersecurity topics by listening, downloading, and subscribing to the Security Breach Podcast. And we're back. And before we get started with In Case You Missed It, Jeff, do you have a little bit more of a teaser regarding uh, upcoming episodes of Security Breach's podcast? Yeah, I mentioned the next upcoming episode with uh, with our guest host from uh, from Dark Side Diaries, Darknet, Darknet Diaries. But we also in a couple of weeks we'll also be talking to Matan Debrushin. He is a VP of Research Editorial, which is an Israeli-based cybersecurity company. And this guy has got some great stories. He's one of those that when we looked at, at his background and asked him about it, he could basically say, "Yes, I did work for a sector of the Israeli Department of Defense, but I can't tell you what I did there." Mm. And basically, he is now working with Atorio to kind of hunt down and get. Better read it on a new group that's popped up that's targeting targeting industrial control systems called GhostSec. So really interesting conversation, really talked about a lot of the different vulnerabilities that are out there. And again, there's a lot of simple things that manufacturers can do to protect themselves against a lot of these bad actors. And Matan gave us a really good rundown. Is uh, Are the episodes with Matan or uh, Darknet, are those live yet or are those upcoming? So um, they will be, by the time this airs, Darknet will be live. Okay. Otario is coming. Okay, very good. Well, let's move on to In Case You Missed It. And we're going to start with Andy. Andy, what is your In Case You Missed It this week? Uh, so we wrote a story this week about um, an indictment that was unsealed um, by federal prosecutors. Um, it involves a company called Semisub, which is based in Honolulu. And they apparently, as of this afternoon, still are offering Uh, basically a tourist cruise service. Mm. Um, But for the past 10 years, prosecutors allege uh, its owners who are a a husband and wife, uh, they were basically going around selling securities in the company to investors. uh, And they ultimately told 
uh, more than 400 people that gave them money that they were actually going to build their own fleet of semi-submersible tourist boats. Um, and that at various times over that span, they told them apparently that they were just weeks or months uh, from putting something in the water. Uh, you might be familiar with where this is headed, given some of the <laughs> stories we've gone over before here. Uh, federal prosecutors allege that $28 million that they raised was actually spent on, uh, well, a number of things. Luxury homes, a Mercedes-Benz car, credit card bills, vacations, that sort of thing. Um, a little tidbit here. Uh, they also took the time to point out a couple of the more unusual purchases, uh, which was cannabis and psychics, not psychedelics, <laughs> but psychics, psychic services. Yes. Uh, the each uh, faces about 20 years in prison for each of the various counts of fraud that they face. Uh, but to you guys, I want to pose this challenge. Uh, comment on this story without resorting to the maybe the psychic should have seen it coming joke. <laughs> Other than, other than the easy, easy, which is off limits. Yes. Which is off limits. Um, $28 million doesn't seem like enough to build a fleet of tourist subs. No. Um, but I mean, maybe get a prototype. I want to, I'm interested in at what point, or if this has always been a sham, uh, just because at some point people have to see that they had multiple, uh, multiple homes all over the U S um, and I mean, not that the Mercedes are, um, I, I don't know how much cannabis they have to buy. That was another thought in had, order yeah. to be like in the indictment, mm-hmm. just like, where is it? Bushels? Yeah. You know, I mean, all of a sudden they started seizing homes and they're like, they have so much weed. It's crazy. Um, but I don't know. There are a lot of, I guess everyone is always chasing easier money. And so if someone gives you a good enough sales pitch and can separate you from your money, it's going to happen long past our, you know, uh, our time and well into the future. And uh, you feel bad for people that were, uh, you know, victimized. Um, But this one just, I don't, a friend's not going to come to me and be like, hey, David, we're going to launch a fleet of tourist subs. What are you in for? And I'll be like, nothing. I'll be the first yeah. reservation. That's the thing. Like, so unless my math is wrong here, this is like an average of like 70 grand per investor. Right. I'll trust you. This, right? yeah, it's <laughs> so yeah. Aren't there so many other ways to invest $70,000 other than tourist subs? Yeah. I mean, who are you? Well, it also like, has to be. Like, what is that? How, uh, when did the fraud scheme start again? Uh, it said more than a decade. Okay. So, I mean, maybe, maybe like 10 years ago, when tourist was going, when tourism was a little bit hotter, maybe it seemed like uh, more of a slam dunk. But I mean, could you imagine doing that in this current climate? Definitely not. But even then, like, it's not a hotel. It's yeah. Not, it's not an airline. It's nothing. It's a, yeah. It's a niche business. Man, you just have to have money to burn. So while they were obviously, it's horrible that they were defrauded out of that much money. Still, like, be smarter. Come mm-hmm. on. What are you doing? I wonder if... uh I wonder how much of a, a scam artist this uh, this individual was because he was banned from, I believe, selling securities in Pennsylvania and California. Yeah, and he still before did. before this yeah. whole scam started. So yeah. I don't think he was a rookie when he uh, started this little well, plan. We, you know, you raised the question: Would you hire that guy from Cary? Oh, know, yeah. in manufacturing again? I'll tell you what, I want this guy as my salesperson. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, he'll be available 
in the next 10 to 15 years. Um, no, it was, I found that particularly interesting too, Andy, is that, you know, he was banned from selling, what was it, Pennsylvania and California? To the best of my knowledge, yes. Yeah. And then, uh, I mean, he still did it anyway. Yeah. So what good is the ban? Mm-hmm. Uh, people are going to cheat. I like how it also, on their website, they still say that, uh, what is it? Newly designed vessel. Uh, on the website right now, it says, a newly de- designed vessel was scheduled for is scheduled for the summer and fall of 2020, urging people uh, at the website to check out check it out often. Yeah, stay tuned. Yeah, I mean, I understand that they've probably had more things on their plate lately, but I mean, <laughs> <laughs> didn't didn't a little yeah, distracted. Yeah, didn't get to contact their web host to yeah adjust that timeline. Yeah, if you're still trying to fraud like commit fraud you got to keep up with the paper mm. you got you know you got to say 2020 yeah, you got to say know? check back in many years yeah all right my in case you missed it this week was a robot octopus that can be trusted with fragile objects a group of researchers at the Harvard School of Engineering have developed a set of robot grippers inspired by octopus tentacles the tentacles work in tandem to lift heavy fragile or awkward objects which has been a challenge for grippers in the past The robot octopus consists of hollow rubber tubes that are thicker on one side so that an object, or when they're inflated, they curl up. That way, when they kind of drape their tentacles around the object, they twist and tangle together to form a collective grip. It looks really weird. (laughs) The soft robot gripper is gentle enough to pick up sensitive parts without damaging them. The team says this could change the way robots are used for grasping objects Though I'm not sure how ready to replace traditional grippers we are yet, but I understand the applicability. The tentacles have picked up everything from houseplants to toys, but would likely be most applicable in picking fruit and vegetables for agricultural production and distribution, delicate tissue in medical settings, or irregular shaped objects in warehouse settings. I chose this story because it's another great example of biomimicry. And I also chose the story because I have been at trade shows looking at um, who is the uh, the company's on robot, and they make some incredible grippers. Um, there's another spinoff that makes a gripper that's actually inspired by the suckers on octopus uh, tentacles. So I've been at these shows, seen grippers like this, and I'm like, I don't know, I don't know, like uh, I I don't see it. And then they've you know been smashing successes in uh, material handling. Uh, I also like that this particular application was at the end of uh, a UR Cobot, um, which it seems like whenever we see a cool robotic application now, it's always a universal robot Cobot that's uh, a part of it. Um, What were you guys thinking about when you saw these crazy grippers kind of like drop down like spaghetti, (laughs) suck up and pick up anything in their grasp? It feels like it would be pretty unsettling and dystopian watching them pick uh, oranges in a citrus <laughs> fi- field or something. It would be, yeah, just um but uh but other than that, I mean it's it's certainly something that needs advancement robot grippers, so it's I mean, who am I to argue? No. Despite how unsettling it might look. Yeah, the advancements in soft robots and uh robotic grippers is continues to blow my mind. That's one thing Jeff that I thought about too is that while it can grasp objects, there has to be a little bit more retooling that to make it more, I don't want to say efficient, but it seems like uh, it can't move too fast. I agree. I mean, purple streetlights, octopus grippers. <laughs> what more is there? Oh, so we much are, more. Yeah, we we are more. approaching the end of days. No. 
It's a, I think it makes a lot of sense for a couple of different reasons. Obviously, when we look at, um, you know, I was just down at Pack Expo and working at the workload or the payload of some of these robots, when you look at something like this, you could probably expand that without really adding to a lot of weight or other mechanical elements from a cost perspective to the robot. Mm-hmm. I think it might be more cost effective in the long term, not right now. Yeah. I could also see this from with a, working with food and produce from a quality control perspective. You don't have to worry about wrecking the fruit, you know, oh, yeah. bruising the fruit or anything. So I see a, a ton of different potential applications here. It's a paradigm shift. I mean, mm-hmm. if you're looking at using this with a cobot, people are already a little reticent and rightfully so in terms of working with robots, making it <laughs> making it look like this where, and I mean, it, it does. It looks like robotic tentacles hanging from this robotic arm. It's weird looking right now. So there will be definitely getting through that mindset and embracing this a little bit more. I do think it's one of those things, once you see the results, Mm. That'll go away though, because yeah. I think this is an incredible um, leap forward in what we could we could accomplish. So we talked about how creepy and unnecessary, <laughs> or you and Anna, anyways, talked about how creepy and unnecessary the humanoid robots are. Yeah, because they have the they're working on the humanoid hands. It's so more than that. What if it's a humanoid robot with these dangly tentacles just <laughs> walking around? I'd watch that. <laughs> but would you work with it? Yeah. No, not a chance. Walk, work alongside <laughs> it. Just like watch it, like pick up the mouse. Just like, like, no, nah, nah, can't do it. Can't do it. Uh, two other points about this story is that one, the close up of the tentacles just looks so much like a hot dog. I can't get over it. And you can see it in the thumbnail in particular. And the other is that I recently finished watching season three of the boys and my perspective on the octopus oh, has permanently it. changed. So I cannot watch this and just not be perturbed. That's all I'll say on that subject. Jeff, what is your, in case you missed it? Oh, boy. <laughs> I mean, you saw season three, man. I'm going to just move <laughs> past that. <clears throat> um, my story is about Hyundai breaking ground on a $5.5 billion electric vehicle plant in Georgia. Right now, the state of Georgia, to me, is fascinating. Okay, for for a number of reasons. So we've got this Hyundai plant that they broke ground on. Now, this one, just to be clear, um, is is down in Savannah. So it's about three and a half, four hours southeast of Atlanta. I bring up Atlanta because that's just outside of there is where the Rivian plant is getting a lot of debate right now. Mm -hmm. People don't want it there. Here, they're very excited about it. So kind of interesting polar attitudes towards these, these two different car companies, which have a very similar footprint have a very similar number of jobs that they're bringing to those respective areas, but different political climates in both of those areas right now. And it's also interesting because at this groundbreaking, you had a Republican governor, Kemp, who's facing a fierce reelection campaign. He's, he's facing an Atlanta Democrat, um, Abrams. And then you've also had the Democratic senator from Georgia right now, who's in a really heated um, race with Pro, used to be a former football player, Herschel Walker. Mm. So you had this Republican and Democrat trying to jointly take credit for something because they sort of have to, to yeah. win their respective races, even though they're on different sides of the aisle. So <clears throat> in both of those races, depending on which way they go, could definitely have trickle effects, not just for like the Rivian plant potentially, but in the political system. So it's, it's really interesting to see that. This also brought to light a lot of things that came about with the recent um, EV credits that were part oh, of the yeah. – um, inflation Reduction or Control Act that Biden passed. So it was it was interesting because Hyundai followed through on this, but they also took this opportunity to voice their concerns over the way those credits are being treated, and we've talked about that a ton lately. So it, it just brought a lot of things into microcosm, 
It was good to see that this facility is still going forward. It'll be interesting to see how it impacts the Rivian plant up north uh, in Georgia, as well as some of the fallout politically mm-hmm. and the impact it could have. So it was, it was interesting on a number of uh, levels to me. Another thing that was interesting to me was that for the champagne celebration, they used uh, Spot, the robot dog from Boston Dynamics, uh, walks up with a tray of champagne for the champagne toast. And I mean, there are more difficult ways to show that you're an innovative company rather than just bringing a robot dog on the stage. I'm sure I should have some take about what it means for the broader manufacturing sector, but all I could think about is what is that dog doing there? Like, <laughs> so. Agreed. Agreed. I was. Uh, I still don't know. It's no, just just a cool thing. I think. I mean, it was my perspective that uh, they just kind of did it to show that that they were you know okay. innovative, forward thinking. Like this is the plants of the yeah. future because we're going to have robot dogs. All right. Um, no, but uh, Jeff, I'm glad that you've kind of followed these stories, uh, both Rivian and Hyundai um, in Georgia, because they seem to change week to week depending on yeah. uh, maybe how things are polling. Yeah, it's, it's just interesting because, and I guess you could, it's probably in a lot of different states, but you saw the northern part of the state saying, get this plan out of here. We're not interested. Southern part going, yeah, mm-hmm. we're down. We're in with this. There wasn't, there was still um, tax credits. I think one of the biggest differences too, though, is you're looking at Hyundai, an established vehicle maker. Right. Rivian, still in the throes of getting started. You know, they're basically a startup type mode right now. Um, not everybody's a fan of Amazon. The, Amazon has a big stake in Rivian. So, mm-hmm. It will be interesting to see how all that plays out. I definitely think that plays into it. The fact that it's Hyundai versus Rivian. Yeah. I would suspect there's a huge disparity between the economic situations of those two cities. And that plays a lot lot into it too. Atlanta has a lot of things going for it. I, while Savannah is lovely, I'm not sure it has as much from a manufacturing base going on. Well, it's just interesting how vocal this population can be like in Georgia specifically about new ventures, new enterprises coming in there. This isn't far. Savannah is not far from where uh, they were trying to build that spaceport. And the people just kept shooting it down and shooting it down. And the government's like, no, it's a great idea, you guys. Come on. Spaceport, Georgia. Yeah. All right. Well, before we get out of here, let's move on with our final thoughts. Zal, thank you very much for joining us today. What is your final thought? Uh, Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, I am headed to my first trade show in four years. Uh, there you go. There you go. Uh, Stafta in San Diego. Um, uh, my thought was that, uh, my aunt lived in San Diego for decades, but I haven't been there since I was a kid. Um, I really wanted to go to this, uh, seafood restaurant on the water. I'm not a kid anymore. So obviously it's no longer there. So, uh, I'm looking for, uh, dining establishment tips Mm. in downtown San Diego. If any listeners, uh, have any of those for me, I'm all ears. I just know that I'm so far out of it because I think San Diego and the only thing I know is that they made like a new Sesame Street uh, world there. I could do that. I mean, check it out. Yeah. Yeah. Just get to the gas lamp district and you're good. Man. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, my final thought this week is that uh, coming up to this weekend, we have Halloween and I love that holiday. I love uh, dressing weird and getting silly. And uh, so, you know, as you're dressing, like every other day. Yeah. I'm going to dress in jeans and a black shirt. That's what I'm going <laughs> um, No, but I uh, really look forward to having some fun with the kids going trick-or-treating, um, possibly dressing up and uh, getting a little weird ourselves. But, you know, we'll see. Uh, but as you do, be safe and be kind to people. Jeff, what's your final thought this week? 
yeah, as we kind of alluded to, got back on the road this uh, this week. It was great. Had a chance to go down to Emerson, a little time at Pack Expo. It was it was awesome. Um, interesting, just watching people a little bit. Maybe that mm. sounds weird, but like being in the airport, like I'd flown a couple times previous to this, but th- now like the airport is packed. Mm-hmm. Every flight is packed. Before it was a little more sparse. So just being around, just that collective, I guess was. It was cool. It was almost like being reintroduced to some of these experiences before. So it was, it was interesting to again be on a full plane in a full airport, going to a trade show, seeing a bunch of people. It was. It feels like we are getting back into a natural groove. Yeah. Um, being down in McCormick, that was the first time I think I've been there in three and a half, four years. And I mean, we were going there three or four times a year yeah. when we were in full mode. So um, just cool getting back out there and being able to talk to people and stuff like that. It's good uh, stuff. Good shows. Very good. Yeah. Really, really good stuff um, at both places. So, okay. Um, we had the poll podcast poll. Mm-hmm. We had a ton of feedback. Before I get to the podcast poll, I did want to bring up another note that we got from a, a listener. Uh, this comes from Jeff Abrams, and he was commenting on a lot of stuff that we did with 3M and then the counterfeit story oh. that we also had. And I'm bringing it up not just because he agrees with me, <laughs> but because mm-hmm. I thought he made some other point here. Because his whole thing was basically we were really tough on 3M. But he gets back to the procurement process and, again, how that needs to be fixed. And his closing thought here is he thinks the DOD should turn the receiving process over to our soldiers, the service using the product to perform the inspections like the special forces units do to approve their products. Even if they have to increase the force by more people, even if it's a couple hundred sergeants or 20,000 privates, the rest of the command structure could get what they need and to be successful. Yeah. I think that was an interesting perspective there because we did talk about, or at least you know, one of the points that I brought up with the counterfeit uniform story was this process is flawed. Yeah. And I think Jeff is offering some, um, some interesting thoughts there and actually having the troops themselves sort of be versed in quality control for what they need makes a lot of sense. Oh, so like getting them involved earlier in the process before they actually uh, procure uh Well, I think the the, even when it comes in. Or is it like, oh, okay. Because Does one that of the, not happen? Not really. I mean- because you get it, you get your gear and you're going. Okay. You know, you're trusting but when you get it that it's going to work. Now you do some preliminary tests, but in the case of those, <clears throat> excuse me, those uniforms, how are you going to know if they're actually indetectable by night vision? Night yeah. vision. You know, yeah. you have to actually get on the field and do that. That's not always, t- you don't have time to do those types of things. So okay. he's saying do that, get more people in there, give them more control of their quality control, which is an interesting thought. So just wanted to share that and appreciate Jeff Abrams writing in. Getting back to the poll question again, the question that we had is, does the need to answer to investors of a publicly traded company make it easier or harder to make good ethical decisions? Jose wrote in, he said, the pressure to post short-term profits motivates many companies to make the wrong decisions. In some cases, even break or ignore the law. We've definitely seen that be the case. Mm. Uh, Jack also commented, he said, you'd think it would make it easier, but it doesn't always work that way. I saw people, sadly, on a regular basis, trying to get away with something illegal only to get caught. We definitely heard that. Was that, he's just, he's seen that? Yeah. Oh, man. That's what he's saying. Cryptic. Yeah, we also heard another one. This person um, was anonymous. He said, I understand that investors want to make a good return on the investment, or I feel like the investors are more disassociated from the employees of the business. Privately owned company tends to develop friendships and a family feel with their employees, whereas investors do not. And the decisions that impact the employees and the employees' families are not cared by as much uh, as they are as opposed to making the biggest return on their investment. So even though all of those responses indicated that it would be harder, 
it was actually much closer than I thought it would be. It broke down to about 57% said it would be harder to make good ethical decisions versus mm-hmm. 42% thought it would be easier. Interesting. So I thought it would be, I thought there'd be a bigger gap there. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting to see. Appreciate everybody uh, responding to that podcast or that polling question. And if I owe you a T-shirt, please just let me know because I kind of lost track. I mean, when you go on the road, like <clears throat> everything, it's uh, and you're you're probably feeling it now. But the exhaustion of the travel and the full days on a trade show floor, and then kind of getting caught up with everything you missed throughout the day, <laughs> like that is that is a grind, man. So I understand yeah. if you're exhausted. Yes. So again, I know I owe some people some stuff. Please uh, don't hesitate to ping me on that. This week, our question, you know, just looking at some of the stuff we talked about again during the podcast, the question is, which of the following situations do you think creates the strongest misperceptions of manufacturing with younger generations? So we know manufacturing has an image issue. It's dirty. um, It's difficult. It's harsh working environments, all those things that potentially turn people off. And a lot of stuff we talk about could potentially feed into some of those misconceptions. Right. So of these, in relation to some of the stuff we talked about, do you think it could create some of these misperceptions most uh, most strongly? First one, first option would be lack of quality controls that lead to product defects. I mean, we talked about a couple different stories. Plant closures and consolidations, like with Kimberly Clark. Court settlements stemming from employee harassment or abuse. We talked about that with uh, the situation there in um, the poultry processing facility. Or the end of legacy brands, like Pontiac. It's never easy to hear about things um, closing down. So those would be the four options. Again, we look forward to all the feedback. The feedback's been great so far. Please keep it coming. It would be interesting if we could separate this one based on age. Like if we could have people yeah. provide their age group and then their answer. It'd be interesting to see how that broke down. Okay. Um, <clears throat> all right. Well, before we get out of here, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You could also help us out by leaving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you lo- you use. Uh, if you want to email any of us, you can reach us at Jeff, David, or Andy at IN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. And Andy, thanks again. Always a pleasure. Anytime. All right. Before we get out of here, also make sure to subscribe to our daily and weekly newsletters to make sure you get the podcast delivered to your inbox first. All right. We'll see you next Thursday at 1.30 on YouTube for the live event. And for Jeff and Andy and Anna at home, we miss you. I'm David Manti. This is the Today in Manufacturing podcast. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast.